The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. So when you cast your vote tonight, rubber stamping another environmental holocaust in the name of urban renewal, I want you to remember the San Jacinto's dirt shrew. How could we forget him? Their beauty was here long before we were. This sewer is soaked in their blood. Thank you, Jane Chaffin, a founder, president, and sole member of the Agrestic Eco Warriors. Your passion humbles us. And that concludes the public debate on Motion 412, the proposal to expand the sewer and water reclamation systems of Greater Agresta. Let's do this. All of those. All in favor of more pipe, say aye. 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 The ayes have it. Moment of silence for the dirt shrew. Motion is passed. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 16, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Al Gretzky. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show today, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us, or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show, in the second half, I'll be concentrating on something I've talked about before in the past, and it's coming to haunt us at every level of government, and that's falling into the poverty trap. Not talking necessarily about poor people either, as you'll discover also, Al, I understand you're going to be talking about the middle class. It's going to be the new focus <coughs> of politicians a little it, later on in the it, show. It absolutely, and it will be, yes. And you want to begin off with um, a council that can live within its means or not. Is that generally that's the gen- theme? That's yeah. generally the theme. Mm-hmm. Basically, what it's going to be is I'm going to give folks some information where they can uh, sort of look at the candidates and where they stand and uh, make their choices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I don't get a lot of emails from folks on the left, other than those I get from my daughter-in-law, who is the NDP, MPP for Windsor West, uh, her party's correction critic. Well, maybe a couple asking for money. Uh, So to say that all the emails I get from the right are agreeing with me on the election might seem redundant. However, you must remember, getting agreements on the right is kind of like herding cats. Ain't easy. But in this election, we are all worried. There's a collective fear that if the progressives get elected, the next council will push a progressive agenda, a money-spending agenda. So this is no longer just a contest of individuals seeking to advance London's cause. It has become a struggle of independents battling candidates with connections to groups and well-placed individuals. It's, it's the first time that I can recall that an outgoing mayor has so unabashedly thrown their support behind one of the candidates looking to replace them. That is not to say that it hasn't happened, it's just that I don't remember it being so open. So while the current temporary council-appointed fill-in-the-gap mayor has every right to an opinion, 
I would have hoped she would have used it to encourage all Londoners across the city to vote for their choice rather than encourage them to support her choice. It would seem that certain attitudes on this council will continue until the new one is sworn in, and if we are unlucky, even after. Uh, Let me digress here for a sec. Uh, Bob and I had a conversation, really, uh, I mean, in regard to the me- what the media called the divided council, worst ever. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had that conversation, and you pointed out quite accurately that the reason that the council seemed raucous the last go-around was not from bitterness and animosity. They stood out because the previous council to them was basically all in agreement. The majority of that council agreed spending the city into prosperity with borrowed funds was the correct course. Debt was not seen as a problem, but a good thing. That future Londoners would bask in the glory of what they had done and in that glory not object to the yearly payments that would have to be made to fulfill the obligations that they created. You know, that over $400 million debt and the $66 million yearly payment. Mm-hmm. So, in, in this election of this council, uh, folks recognized the madness in this approach and brought in some people who saw uncontrolled spending was no longer viable, and they stood up against it. That created debate, not divisiveness or personal acrimony, as it was often portrayed in the media, but debate. The fact was, the people had elected councillors to stop the hemorrhaging of tax money. Now, think of this. Do you really want to go back there? Think carefully when voting. Anyway, back to this year's election. As I have discussed in two previous shows, there's been a media push for the favorites, or as I call them, the chosen ones. Even more concerning, though, is a major rise in what I see as progressive groups becoming more heavily involved. Let me take one final run at what I believe is going to be one of the greatest spending mistakes made by the city in a long time. That's the purchase for King's Mills to get more Fanshawe students into the downtown core. Remember, this deal was all about getting feet on the ground but vibrancy into the core. Well, if that was really the truth, then why has the city just put a hold on the building of a 30-story high-rise? Not only would it not cost the city any money... It would have created a bigger tax base, more jobs, brought in over 400 new pairs of feet on the ground to downtown. Wasn't that the point of Fanshawe College? It's a question that needs to be asked and answered. Speaking of Kingsmills, I'm not going to rehash the Matt Brown presented BIA amendment turning $10 million into nine that helped change the vote nor discuss the fact that Mr. Brown admitted he had received a donation from King's Mills, or the zealous push by temporary mayor Joni Beckler. I'm glad you didn't mention any of those. (laughs) (laughs) What I will do is show some of the connections between certain groups and individuals that may affect the outcome of the election. In the next few minutes, I will give you a list of groups and individuals and how they are connected in helping each other. These groups and individuals are working hard within the system to push their agenda, and it's important for you to understand that. And it is up to you to decide whether or not you follow their ideals and goals. Let us start with that letter that temporary Mayor Joni Beckler sent to the media. In it, she listed several groups that supported the Kingsmill deal. They were Fanshawe College, LEDC, 
Downtown London, Main Street London, London Downtown Association. Now, why discuss these groups? Here's why. One, Fanshawe College Foundation Board of Governors includes Bob Siskin, who chaired numerous not-for-profit organizations, including the LEDC, which you'll hear a lot of. Recently, chairmanship of a $15 million fundraising campaign for Fanshawe College. Bob Siskin is also part of Matt Brown's campaign team. Two, London Economic Development Corporation, LEDC, is responsible for attracting new business and foreign direct investment to London. The Board of Governors of LEDC includes Howard Rundle, President Emeritus Fanshawe College, 3, 4, and 5, Downtown London, Main Street London, and Down London Downtown Business Association are primarily one organization. That's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Their, their, boards, their boards are almost identical. Programming is implemented by a small staff at Downtown London. The consultant listed on the Board of Directors for Main Street London is Joel Adams, supporter of Matt Brown for Mayor and Josh Morgan for Council in Ward 7. Both Morgan and Adams served on the Board of Governors for Western. Adams is also a member of Nonprofit Emerging Leaders. So let's have a look at some of those uh, interest groups and nonprofit connections. Emerging Leaders is an incorporated nonprofit organization. Board members include Glenn Pearson, two members from Fanshawe College, and others. Its founders include Joel Adams, director of Western Research Park, and Katie Ward, manager, business retention, LEDC, on the Sustainability Advisory Committee is Michelle Baldwin, Pillar Nonprofit Network. Two, Urban League is a registered charity. Among the directors at large is Anna Hopkins, candidate for City Council in Ward 9. Past presidents of Urban League, Stephen Turner, candidate Ward 11. And Joni Beckler, current interim mayor of London. Great support for Matt Brown here. Women and Politics, a citizen-led initiative looking to engage women in politics. Women in Politics was organized by Joni Beckler and Gina Barber, former sociology professor at Fanshawe College. The site often promotes the London plan. It's the one that Matt Brown talks about spending $380 million we don't have for rapid bus transit. Citizen Corps is a collaborative, nonpartisan, citizen-led initiative. However, the second article on their website is a notice of a code of conduct complaint against Jill Swan, a candidate for mayor and opponent of Matt Brown. Pillar Nonprofit Network is an organization that supports nonprofit organizations. Pillar supporters include Fanshawe College, Fanshawe College Foundation, Foundation Western, LEDC. Pillar's sustainers include Fanshawe College Foundation and London Economic Development Corporation. Candidates endorsed by the following two organizations, the London Multicultural Club and London and District Labor Council, which represents CUPE, OPSU, CUPW, PSAC, Unifor, Elementary and Secondary Teachers Union, and others are Ward 2, Nancy McCloy, Community Organizer, Ward 3, Mohammed Saleh, NDP Provincial Nomination Candidate, Ward 7, Josh Morgan, Western University, Ward 9, Anna Hopkins, Community Organizer, Ward 10, uh, Virginia Ridley, 3rd VP of OPSU, Ward 11, Stephen Turner, Citizens Corps, 
Ward 12, Peter Ferguson, researcher at Western, and Mayor Matt Brown, teacher. Other endorsements include Michael Van Hoist, teacher. Ward 4, Jesse Helmer. Ward 5, Kevin Labonte, Green Party candidate. Ward 6, Marie Blosch, Associate Professor at Western. Ward 8, Paul Hubert. Ward 13, Tanya Park, Community Activist. And Ward 14, Jared Zaifman. Let's have a quick look at uh, who has sponsored and promoted candidate questionnaires, debates, and meetings that were covered by the media. Pillar Nonprofit, Women in Politics, the Urban League, Emerging Leaders, Citizen Corps, London and District Labor Council, London Multicultural. Now, don't take my word for all of this. Do what I did. Go online and check it out. You now have a more accurate look at who and what are driving forces in this election. It's time for you to decide if you agree or disagree and cast your vote accordingly. Do you want a council living within its means or one that's going to put us further into debt? And there you have my spin on that, huh? Interesting. You know, I, I live in the riding where Stephen Turner is running. And I have his brochure here mm -hmm. in hand, as you see. And I read all the points on it, and I have to say I disagree with almost each and every one of them, <laughs> with one or two exceptions. But what I found was interesting, that he wanted to eliminate developer union and corporate donations from municipal campaigns, which would cut out a, even a, ca a candidate like Arn and Kaplansky totally. Do he wouldn't be allowed to run. No. Uh, so if you if you if you're a developer, you're a, you're a cursed breed in, in I guess Stephen Turner's mind, who is uh, part of what Citizens Corps. I don't know. I guess he yes. doesn't want everyone to be a citizen. I don't know what's <laughs> going on there. Anyway, time for a quick break, and we will return with a discussion on the middle class. Is that right, Al? That is okay, it. Okay, we'll be right back after this. This is bull. Yeah. You can't just toss us aside like we're regular people. No. We're elected officials. I'm an elected official. You were elected by a city that no longer exists. And coarse language will not be tolerated here, Mr. Wilson. F*** you, Carilli. We have jobs we expect to keep. We have contracts with the city we expect to be honored. I expect mine to be honored. Wilson, if you cannot control that vile mouth of yours, I will have you thrown out of this meeting. Oh, don't you get all pious on me. You promised we'd get absorbed into the machine here, that I'd get absorbed into the machine here. And as citizens of Majestic, you all have the right to run for office in the next election one year from now. Oh, horse oh, yes. Any city council with a half a brain has got the system so juiced up, no one knew has a prayer of getting elected. Yeah, I want my landscaping contract back. Well, I am sorry, but all the landscaping in Majestic is handled by the Majestic Ministries Development Corporation. Okay, look, if we can't get satisfaction here, we will get it in the streets. There are other ways that you can serve the fine city of Majestic. You can volunteer for municipal programs. Volunteering is for saps. We expect to feed off the tit of local government just like you. It may come as no surprise to you that the vast majority of Americans are dissatisfied with the operation of the federal government this, these days. The middle class says both political parties need to do more for working men and women, middle class America. As Bill Schneider now reports, the Democratic candidates for president say they've begun to listen. Frustrated. 
That's how most Americans say they feel about government in the latest Pew Research Center poll. The, the poll finds that the public That's wants the government to do more to help the middle class, like a higher minimum wage, affirmative action programs, having the government take care of people who can't take care of themselves, and a government guarantee of health insurance for all, even if it means raising taxes. Democratic candidates for president are responding to the demand for more government responsibility in meeting the needs of the middle class. It's been the creation of a massive middle class through decent wages and benefits in public schools that have allowed all of us to prosper. But while Americans want government to do more, they trust government less. Poll takers have been asking the question, how much of the time do you think you can trust the government in Washington to do what is right for almost 50 years? The number of Americans who said they trust the government peaked back in 1958. It started to go down in the 1960s. By the Malays crisis of the late 1970s, trust in government reached an all-time low, 29%. It went up a bit during the 80s and 90s when the economy was good. The latest figure? Only 31% of Americans say they trust the government, about as low as it was during the 1970s. Republican candidates make their pitch to the frustrated middle class by targeting taxes. Why pay more taxes to a government you don't trust? I'll fight to stop the tax hike, and I'll fight for a new savings plan for middle class Americans as well. The two trends are colliding. Americans want government to do more and more to help the middle class, but they trust government less and less, so the result is mounting frustration. Well, mounting frustration, and empirically, is there any reason for middle-class America in particular not to be frustrated with this government? And I'm not talking politically or in yeah. terms of partisan views or uh, allegiances. Yeah. Just the administration and the operation of this federal government, department by department. Yes, well, that frustration has been mounting for years, as we saw in that trend. It's never been as high as it was in 1958. That's when it peaked, and it's collapsed. And it's interesting, 1958, the year, of course, of Sputnik, uh, that mm. period uh, also producing the Gary Powers incident with yes. the U-2 over the Soviet right. Union, and uh, the first time in my memory and certain mm. evidence that a president lied to the American people. And uh, uh, it, it's an interesting date. And everything has been unraveling in the federal government since then. Well, it's, uh, it's time for, of course, uh, correction, as they say, and hopefully uh, we have begun that process. Thank you very much, Bill Snyder. To uh, show how things really never change, that Lou Dobbs clip was from 2006. As far back as 350 B.C., Aristotle said, no democracy could last without middle-class rule. The rich and the poor simply distrust each other too intensely to let the other have the reins. Two news reports got me looking at the topic of the middle class. In one, the leader of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, made the pronouncement that the middle class in Canada is disintegrating. In essence, being left behind. His definitions of the middle class are, it's people who live paycheck to paycheck, People who live off of their incomes, that's our middle class, and this one. And those who live off their assets, their portfolios, their trust funds are not. As a retired person, <clears throat> I'm not sure where I fit yeah. in his world. Confusingly clear. At the same time, the New York Times printed a study which rated Canada and its middle class as one of the best in the world. That we have fuller employment and a more stable labor market. So who's right? 
Well, to get some background, I keyed middle class into Google, and I got 187 million hits in 0.37 <laughs> seconds. With that many hits, it didn't take long to realize that you could cherry-pick a great story either way. Why talk middle class? Well, I believe it's going to be the one major issue in the next federal election. Progressives have made it clear since witnessing Obama and the Democrats win using issues of class, in particular, saving the middle class. With so much effort put into examining this topic, I was hoping to discover that they had got a hold of just what the middle class is. No such luck. The more I read and the more I discovered that it depended on whom you were reading or listening to, the opinions ranged from, it is one of the most misunderstood slash understood, misrepresented slash clearly presented, misdiagnosed slash resolved subjects on the planet. <laughs> Several decades ago, the, uh, the prevailing attitude was a positive one. You know, it was the Beaver Cleaver Cosby family ideal. But the closer you get to today's media's portrait is a more negative one. Fifty years ago, everything was coming up roses. Today, it's all thorns and no flowers. Another major difference uh, between earlier years and today is the main street media. Back then, with little exception, there was agreement of a solid, uh, positive state in the nation. Today, you have to even factor into the mix who you read to determine um, the, the view of middle class. National Post and McLean's gives a positive picture, while Sun and Star, uh, they are mainly purveyors of doom and gloom. However, if you want real examples of doom and gloom, just head on over to YouTube to get a video sense of the term middle class. It is negatively personified with titles such as, How the Middle Class Got Screwed the middle class and suburban poverty, collapse of the middle class, etc. All of them are similar due to their basic premise. Moving business overseas and a loss of jobs, greedy CEOs keeping too much of the wealth, too much profit, not enough sharing of the bounty equally, etc. The scenarios also include the following. The rich, those who own the companies and those who manage them, are intentionally working to destroy the middle class. That the rich have colluded to make sure that the rest of society has nothing. To which I ask, to what end? Seriously. While for a short time you might get high on the power, but how is that going to benefit anyone in the long term? Especially the rich. I personally find it difficult to understand how it benefits the owners of plants, factories worldwide, to marginalize their workers to the point they cannot afford to buy the products they manufacture, or for that matter, anything, because that would, of course, defeat the premise of capitalistic society. If you do not have any money, you will not be able to spend. Ergo, nothing would be sold, and there would be no profit, and the rich would eventually become as broke as the poor. There is no way to even imagine a world come to pass that would find former jet-setters being forced to eke out a living from vegetable farms in their backyards. I found this little anecdote interesting. As I was preparing my notes, I got a phone call. and During the conversation, I told the caller I was going to be on the show and my topic would be the middle class. His response was, with only 30 of us left, that should be an easy one. <laughs> Need I point out he was a devout progressive and unionist. <laughs> 
If you uh, take a realist look around you, you would have to accept that the various segments of society today are dependent on each other for existence. If any of them collapse, eventually all of them would collapse. That ideal is one that stands on its own merit. It is no different than a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So at this point, uh, being frustrated, I decided to change my focus to try and find a definition of the middle class. Another hopeless task. Dictionary.com gives a class of people intermediate between the classes of higher and lower social rank or standing, the social economic cultural class having approximately average status. A fancy way of stating the obvious, somewhere between rich and poor. But that simple definition is not enough. Here from a progressive website, by the numbers, we have. Then there is the question of how do you measure middle class to come up with the definition? Agreement among economists, economists on what constitutes Canada's middle class varies based on whether you look at family or individual income, provincial or national data, before or after taxes, oh ad nauseum, <laughs> and uh, other sources argued it should not be based on the median difference between the very poor and the very rich, but rather it should be found by using the median after eliminating the very poor and the very rich. Then there's also the question of whether it should be based <coughs> on the value of our possessions or the value we place on ourselves. The logic here, even many on what is referred to as subsistence income enjoy much of life's amenities and believe it or not, are happy. Another ingredient to throw into the mix is how do you include the connection between the growing size of government the shrinking of the industrial middle class, and the rapid increase in what we call the dependent class. And then how do you account for the fact that much of today's middle class is actually made up of the public sector, those who are employed by the government, from the elected rulers to the bureaucrats all the way down to the dog catcher? That, that should almost be a separate class of its That's own, don't you think? <laughs> I agree. These are employed persons who do not produce a product to be sold for a profit we can share. How does that raise anyone else's standard of living? What is going to be interesting, for me anyway, uh, is to watch how federal parties in 2015 spin the debate which, uh, which of the various methods that I described that they will use. How much of what they will foist on the public will be true and how much of it will be facts that they dig out from 187 million hits on Google. Hopefully, all parties will look at the American experience and think twice on how to use this divisive issue. Two years into their second mandate, the repercussions are still being felt. Let me quote Investor's Business Daily. When President Obama first ran in 2008, he claimed his policy would foster economic growth an immediate rescue plan for the middle class that would end trickle-down. Obama orchestrated massive stimulus, bailouts, temporary tax cuts, new regulations, but his policies produced the exact opposite of what he promised. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Governments, government has never in the history of mankind been able to create a lasting, vibrant society. Every time this progressive system is used, eventually not only are the rich made poor, the poor are made poorer. The only way to establish a solvent middle class is by hard work and business. There you go, Bob.
Excellent. You know, definition-wise, it sounds like we've got a real muddled middle class in terms of trying to even figure out who it, they are. It was crazy trying to find yeah. an, an, a, a consensus, as you as we would say. Well, the same holds true for poverty, and we're going to be moving from the middle class to the lower classes, I suppose, over the next half of the show. But first, uh, we're going to hear from Bloomberg News, uh, Ellen Zetner on Canada versus U.S. middle class going into the break. And when we return, it'll be the poverty trap. Alan, I want to rip up the script here. David Leonard, his new upshot in the New York Times, they talk about the American middle class. Is it as ugly as the New York Times says it is? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, it probably can't be described ugly enough. Um, wow. The middle class has been disappearing for decades in the U.S. <clears throat> if you look at wage growth by decade, it's consistently slowed every decade. But a big credit expansion uh, kept the middle class alive. Until the financial crisis, and we decided to pay down debt. Cards. Right, and we decided to start paying down debt after the financial crisis instead of accumulating debt. Mm. Now, specifically in the article, they target uh, uh, income, so you would think that's wage and salary growth, right? And the middle class and and lower income groups that he's right. talking about rely almost solely on wage and salary income, and that's tied to the very weak right. labor market and wage growth that has been fairly stagnant. Unlike Vince Reinhardt, you didn't show up with 300 pages of note. I don't want to pin you down. On this, but how does Ellen Zettner define middle class? Uh, well, middle class, of course, in the U.S. is a family of four making around $40,000 uh, a year. Um, by New York standards, that doesn't sound like middle class, but when you go outside of the tiny island that we live on, yeah. that you can make a fairly good living for a family mm. of four. Um, unfortunately, other costs and, and costs of living have gone up where incomes have not. And so after downturns especially, you feel much more pinched, and especially when wage growth is barely keeping a pace with inflation. You know, middle class uh, incomes in Canada were behind the United States uh, in 2000, but they now appear to be higher than in the United States. What is Canada doing right? Well, I think Canada is one of those countries that, that didn't quite experience the global financial crisis, at least to the magnitude uh, that other countries did. Um, that's not to say that they won't have their own sort of correction at some point. Uh, you've got a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, concerns around is there a housing market bubble in some areas of Canada and there's credit expansion mm -hmm. there, but they've got a stronger uh, labor market that's right. closer to full employment than we are here in the U.S. and they didn't suffer the well, huge you, downturn. Well, you know what's curious, I mean, prices. Canada banks had, had the problem with real estate back in the late right. 80s, early 90s. They fixed it. We're, we're actually about 10, 15 years behind it. I'm sure you saw it. We've got a problem. Oh, yeah. The best PDX hiking spots. Um, actually, that probably. We've got a real PR problem right now. Uh -huh. People are just not liking the cops in this city at all. Yeah. It started with this event that they disrupted. Oh, yeah. The best PDX hiking spots. Um, no, this, Fred, the big one. So we need to, we need to consider a kinder, gentler police force, I think. Yeah, because that looks... You, as soon as you see a cop car, you get scared, right? And you want to run. Seems like we need to kind of rebrand the Portland Police Force. Even just to change cops, like cops with a K. You could do like Keystone Cops. Yeah. That? yeah, that was like the the comedy team from the 
you know, the silent era of films. You know, when things would spill right. out. Oh, like, that's very funny. A lot of hat switching. They all try to get inside a phone booth. Yeah. Or like, oh, it's a lot of knocking. You know, like, you know, I'm like, oh, that kind of thing. Sam? Sam, we're thinking maybe um, Keystone Cops. Do you know key, uh, yeah. Keystone Cops? Yeah. He loves it. You know, there is something about just the way they look that we could change. I mean, what if we just redesign the uniforms? That's a good idea. Is that a hassle? Change the uniforms. There you go. That's a great idea. I like this idea. I like this idea. Yeah. Sam, we're going to redesign the cop uniforms. That's it. That's fantastic. Nice decision making. Wonderful. Hey. Wonderful help. He was designing it. Well, you guys are. I would do that. I would totally do that. Keep, keep working. I'm going to talk to the police chief, Lester. He's going to love this. Great. Man, Whoa. That looks cool. I like shoulder pads. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you have it. Municipal planning at its best has spoofed on the comedy show Portlandia. You know, this past Friday, I happened to tune into a conversation on CJBK radio between Andy Utman and, and Joan Ball that reminded me very much of the disconnect, non-sequitur humor of Portlandia. It was like listening to people groping around in the, in the dark for answers to a problem for which there is really no ultimate solution, if you really think about it, if you're going to be absolutist and, and total about it, and that's poverty. <coughs> And the last time we spoke to the issue of poverty on the show, we focused largely on its definition, just like you did with middle class earlier, Al, especially given that poverty is always a relative condition to the vast majority of cases that we refer to as poverty. There's also a necessary distinction to be made between poverty as a social condition, which is systemic, versus poverty as experienced by any specific individual who's unable or unwilling to produce the financial income necessary to support himself or herself. So, and of course there is the existence of absolute poverty, but none of that or any of these other conditions that we've discussed before are the subject of what I'm talking about today. Now, this is going on right here in the city of London, Ontario. Joan Ball is the vice chair of the London Middlesex Housing Corporation, a corporation that receives its funding at the behest of city council and at the expense of London property taxpayers. I had the opportunity, or maybe I should say misfortune, of hearing Ms. Ball speak to Andy Utman on CJBK this past Friday on October 10th, and it was all I could do to keep from throwing the proverbial brick at my radio receiver, Al. I nevertheless recorded and transcribed the essentials of the conversation, including the comments of some of the callers, because I could not have possibly found a better illustration of what I've been calling the poverty trap, and that's what I want to concentrate on for the rest of the show. You know, most people might assume that when I use the term poverty trap that I'm talking about the poor themselves, those who can't seem to rise out of their poverty into some modest le level of self-support. But I'm not, because the people, for the most part, that I'm talking about, those people, rather, are more the victims of the poverty trap. Uh, the poverty trap is a way of thinking about both poverty and about wealth. And it's the way that almost all politicians, bureaucrats, and social workers view poverty and its causes. Uh, completely erroneously, from my point of view, which is why the poverty rolls keep on expanding, exponentially it seems, with no end in sight, no matter how many more programs we seem to be putting in place. Seems to me, in science, if the theory doesn't match the practice, you have to either alter or change the theory, because reality, as in actual consequences, is the final arbiter of what is true and not true. 
Now, I had to note that when I was transcribing these comments, it wasn't easy to, to do it because, especially in terms of what Joan was trying to tell us about poverty, because her sentences and thoughts would trail off incompletely so many times. <laughs> Not because she was you know not well spoken but you could tell she hadn't thought it through and and when you get to the end game it's not sitting there you're it's always a wish you end up on this wish and so she would change the subject from the question being asked to something so vague as to defy any possible understanding and the first thing I caught Joan Ball talking about was get it get this public private partnerships right the very thing I warned about last week on the show and she really didn't have anything specific at all to offer by way of a solution to London's poverty problems, particularly after being asked to do so by a couple of London's mayoral candidates. You know, they would say, Joan, just send me an email and give us five points. What policies would you like to see? And they haven't got those. And then she, she told um, Andy, she says, quote, I do know that Matt Brown had a policy of partnership and looking at public-private partnership. A couple of months ago, I looked at the British model, which is incredible because they're looking at a profit-based system, now that's called capitalism, <laughs> that feeds back into an assisted living and social housing system. Well, that's called socialism. And, quote, it's working tremendously well. So we need to be more creative and inventive. She says social housing waiting list is around six months long if you're in the system. If you're not in the system, it's a longer wait. There are rent geared to income plans, there are co-op housing plans, there are other forms of housing that are there. And London's housing program with London Middlesex Housing Corporation is an aging infrastructure and more money is needed to maintain those buildings. What else is new? She said we're putting a bandage on the Hoover Dam. And uh, so in any case, Paul Chang then joined in on the conversation, called in on the show. And he's been addressing the needs of the homeless as part of his mayoral plank and has gone so far as to say, if I recall, you know, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, that's what we've got to do with the poor. Although unclear about what he means by that specifically. Not my house. No. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he he was saying, you know, when you drive around London, you see some of the folks who fall through the cracks. We we pretend we have a world-class city, he says, yet look up and away from the folks who are in need, the less fortunate. So unless we talk about it, raise the alarm about it, it ain't going to get addressed, and I want to face it and say we have a problem, he says. Uh, Doesn't have all the solutions, he admits, but until we recognize it, nobody's going to look at it. And Joan, of course, says to him, well, she supports his sentiment, and uh, but as a community individual, can you address any specifics? Again, groping for some specific. What can they do, right? Other than the obvious thing we know that they want to do is just, just basically give me more money. Give me more money, yeah, right? Which is well, all yeah. they're ever talking yeah. about, right? She's going. Uh, so you know, she's. How would you approach it? From my perspective, partnerships are certainly a good direction. And Ch- Cheng's replied. He says there's some fantastic management systems in London. Without any help from the city, get this. Without any help from the city, the municipality. We went to visit the Ark Project at Dundas and Adelaide, run by a group of individuals who have a system within the community. They feed the people without any regimentation, without any regulations. They do it on common sense, and it works. So get this. Here's the next sentence. So all we need to do is to help these people with some municipal funding. <laughs> <laughs> Right after saying that it works because they don't have that, right? So that they have a secure structure. Right now they're living at the grace of good-hearted people. Yes, that's how it works. Yes. And, and whereas he wants them to live at the behest of people who are having the money robbed from them, I don't think that's the right way to go. And, you know, Joan, they start talking about giving people a hand up instead of a handout, which is, again, another bromide that doesn't really mean anything. And, of course, Cheng agreed with that. 
And then, of course, uh, then Andy Utman brought up uh, a reference to a woman who called his show and said she'd been on welfare for 37 years. And she asked Chang for his thoughts on this, and he hadn't heard about this. He said, obviously, people are falling through the cracks, and they, if, if they're on assistance for 37 years, and somehow the system's failing them. And, uh, and of course, Andy then suggested if we don't spend the money now on helping the poor, etc., then later we'll just have to hire more cops to deal with the crime that results, which is, again, another mythology. Crime yeah. was not at its height during the Depression. Abs it was actually at a lower point. Yeah, people actually tended to help oh each yes, other. Oh, yes, more so, and they were much more aware that, you know, there wasn't a, we didn't have socialism, and yes. people didn't have an entitlement philosophy. They knew that what they owned, they earned, and there was a whole different feeling about it. And Cheng said the root cause is that we don't have enough work for our people. We have to have a growing pie, a bigger pot, so that we can service the less fortunate. If the pot shrinks, no matter how we divide it, eventually we're all going to go down. And, uh, you know, Cheng left the conversation at this point, and Joan Ball commented that Paul does address some need, some things that need to get focused, but she looked at it differently. She thinks if you address homelessness and the individuals who are in need, you have to provide supports to get them on their feet. And she said, yes, of course, the city has a responsibility to provide jobs in a vibrant economy that will attract jobs. That's going to be coupled, and then she kind of faded off and said, it's sort of like two rails on a train track. You've got to do both to get to the end destination. Again, never defined. Uh, clearly, to me, that end destination is not defined or pursued, and I have to say it again. The discussion was like the characters in Portlandia, where everything is whim, emotion, and reason, and cold, hard reality are either unknown or avoided. Wishing for an end to some process without clearly understanding the process or how to reach that end is, to me, again, an unconscionable uh, omission. And by the way, in politics, the end and the means are always the same. There are no ends. That's why capitalism is the only thing that works. It is both the end and, and the means. means. <laughs> Whereas socialism is always a promise to some end that only can mimic capitalism at its best and never gets even close. But that's the promised, you know, the pot at the end of the rainbow. The promised land, the yeah. municipal treasury. So anyways, guilty of political negligence. But the conversation didn't end there. At this point, the open line callers started to call in, and that's when things became very enlightening. We'll begin that chapter in our discussion when we return from this break for a smile. Uh, Chief Wiley, thank you so much for having us um, and for your time. We, we've been talking to the mayor about um, all the public relations problems. And and we understand that we've come to a time in Portland where people consider police officers a little bit of a, a nuisance. We don't think that. We don't think that, but yeah, we've, we've gone ahead and redesigned the police uniforms mm -hmm. in an attempt to get people to think of the police in a new way. The people who work in this department love their uniforms. True, but... Still, this softens it up a little bit so that we're happy, the public is happy, and you guys are happy because then there's no intimidation. You can go... Well, we'll show you. I think you're going to really love it. Please, just take a look. Okay. Tom? Inspired by Portland's sweatshirt culture, this plainclothes look says, hey, we can hang out in a coffee shop, or if you do something bad, you can hang out in jail. The t-shirt simply says PPD. Some people know it as Portland Police Department, but we've also heard it as... Please, please, damn it. Coming up next, we have Felicia. There's not many places to put the gun, but she won't need to carry a gun because she can arrest with those looks. Hands up? I don't think so. It's hands down the best. Last but not least, we have Annie. 
Badges? We do need some stinking badges. These clothes will get you arrested and are arresting. And that concludes the Portland Cop Uniform Redesign. Thank you, Annie, Felicia, Sky, Tom. Guys, come out here. Yeah. Great job. Who is this? It might be the mayor in his new mayor cape. What do you think? Huh? What do you think? <laughs> well, that was thrilling. Thank you. I have an idea. I have an idea. Starting here, starting now. Why don't you police this town? Take your little outfits, go out and catch some bad guys. Looking like a damned idiot. Okay. All right, well, you heard the man? He said you police the town. How hard can it be? What do you do? You just go around and go, hey, what's going on here? You got Is it. there a problem here? Is there a problem here? Let's get to work. Reporting for duty. Yeah. Let's hit the streets. What's all the ruckus, Granny? Who was that? Can't blame Revenue. Sure? Came right out and admitted it himself. Hmm, well, we don't want no trouble with the law. And besides, you said you was gonna stop running your steel. I ain't been. But I don't want no Revenue snooping around in the lowest form of varmints. Even he was ashamed of being one. What? Called it the Infernal Revenue Service. <laughs> Internal Revenue Service? Well. Sit down, sit down. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> well, now, it's a pleasure to have you visit my struggling little bank. <laughs> there we are. Yes, it's, it's always a pleasure to see you splendid chaps from the Internal Revenue Service. You know, I was just, I was just talking to my tax man yesterday. Aspen? No. <laughs> Mr. Drysdale, I'm not here to talk about your income tax return. You're not? No. But your tax man did handle the return for Mr. J.D. Clampett, right? Oh, yes, yes. Mr. Clampett is my largest depositor. Wonderful man. Salt of the earth. Honest as a day is long. Lovely family. Mm. Uh, Mr. Drysdale, I was just fired on by a member of that lovely family. Fired on, you mean shot at? Mm -hmm. With a double-barrel, 12-gauge shotgun. Wielded expertly by a little old lady no bigger than this. Granny. Oh, Mr. Landon, you, you have to understand these people. Oh, I understood her fine. What I don't understand is this. How can a man show an income of millions for last year and not one red penny for all the years previous? Oh, well, well, I, I can explain that. Well, the Treasury Department will appreciate it. Now, this is the beautiful mansion you just visited, right? Well, I would hardly call it a visit. Skirmish might be a better word. Excuse <laughs> the house, yes. Hey, Mr. Landman, would you believe that eight months ago they lived here? No, frankly, I wouldn't. I give him my word. The poorest, most uninformed people imaginable. Why, when an oil company tried to explore their swamp, old Jed's daughter hit him with a rock. Thought he was a revenue. One of the greatest things about the 60s TV comedy, The Beverly Hillbillies, was how it illustrated that people continue be to behave the same way in their new environment as they did in the old environment that they left. In this case, from rags to riches, and that's what made that show so funny and so popular. 
Uh, and as fate would have it, that very aspect of trying to change or affect human behavior in the war on poverty came up in the conversation that we've been talking about so far today. A caller named Rosie called in and said, she says, look, if you, were, if you live in social housing, <coughs> they give you public assistance, you pay uh, you know, rent to, to income. If you mm -hmm. make more money, suddenly you're, you're, you have to pay maximum rent instead of minimum rent. And, wow. she's going, and she's going, what's the incentive for us to work, right? And Joan <laughs> said, well, your incentive is that, you know, pride, you know, self-esteem and saying all those things about quality of life. And um, just very interesting that then the callers started calling in to complain about being taxpayers and they just couldn't see any end to this other than more and more money um, being poured into a, a problem that just, just doesn't go away but gets worse. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is that, and there's the issue of abuse. How do you get people out of the system with abuse? Joan said she can't speak to this with any level of qualification. And she says most of us assume there's probably some abuse. However, if the tools are put in place to address the abuses, at the end of the day we're looking for the betterment of the community, then there's an avenue that we, and then again she faded out again, if we catch the people there will be a focus and a strategy to deal with that, she says. Oh, you know? Excellent. Um, <laughs> although, what does that mean, right? And of course she says we have to put more money into it because that's an investment. It's a good investment to pour money into helping the poor. Um, otherwise they'll rob us, as one person put it. And there's a lot of tension between the poor and the police and all this stuff. And um, so in any case, one caller named Alana called in and says, how are people prioritized on these housing waiting lists? Are, are particular individuals considered in setting priorities or are you just on a massive waiting list? And it sounded from the way that Joan responded, it operates very much like our health care system. If you're in crisis, they might put you in front of the line, but unless you are, you just wait in a line. And of course, so Andy reminded her that, hey, Ontario's going broke, close, close to $300 billion in debt and watching social services collapse, to which Joan replied, well, that's a ripple effect, you know. So pay attention, because if we don't, the ripple will expand outward. I always find interesting that such people will always say that poverty is the cause of ripple effects, but not wealth creation, you know. <laughs> it, should, it should work the other way around. And doesn't she see that the ripple effect is the very symptom that, Andy illustrated, Ontario's going broke. That's the ripple effect of helping all these poor people, not from not helping them. That wasn't what caused it. So she says, we need to really invest. And Andy says, well, that's a tough sell. And then a caller named James called in. He says, without trying to be controversial, what percentage of people living in London housing actually want to work? And Joan switched the question. She says the better question would be to ask <laughs> if we're really attending to the social services to even be able to ask those questions. Are we really collecting the data to be able to? Be able to? You'll recall the survey a few weeks ago where two questions were asked to create a controversy and we removed them. We need to stop fighting about this. We need to come together and really create the questions that will get those answers. Cool then, yeah, really. <laughs> I'm, think, I'm thinking it's not really the better question. It's the question that addresses what Joan Ball wants her, her and her organization to do, right? And, but there's two answers to this. You can either ask them directly, do you guys want to work and get an <laughs> answer? Or offer them a job opportunity and see if they refuse it or accept it. Then you'll get your answers. But Joan Ball wants us all to come together to create these mm. questions for those answers and on and on. And of course, James talks about how he's gone to you know, anywhere to get a job when he need it, needs it. And 
you know, he, he says, how do you instill the desired work in them? And, and she just didn't have an answer to it, you know. It really gets down to some very grassroots life skills training and life skills abilities, she says, and that they need to have people servicing. And she says only one in 50 is getting the kind of help they need. And I'm thinking, one in 50, that means she's saying that we've got to spend 50 times more just to keep up with what we've got there. So, you know, so there you go. You know, that's exactly what we're dealing with. And uh, James, uh, oh, sorry, another caller, um, Tom called in. He says, Joan's obviously a professional social worker. He says, I mean, never mind studying the problem. The best way to get these people out to look for jobs is to cut off the money, right? <laughs> and that's truly, I know it sounds cruel, but that's the answer. If you, there's no consequence to not having a job or not being produ productive yourself, then you're never going to see um, any kind of solution. And with that, I want to quickly go through point form, bang, 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 many as I can get in three or four minutes now, um, what we need to do. Because there's no perfect answer, but there's an answer to minimize poverty, at least in terms of what government itself is able to do. And here's a quick one. We've got to stop thinking in terms of the welfare state and think in terms of welfare. Direct help to people, though, to those who need it, not to service industries that get into the business of helping people and then go out and just look for people to help. Got to end minimum wages. I can't tell you how much that is a key to getting people back to work, along with other similar damaging labor legislation, like we equal pay and all these things that, that, that are not really what they say they are. Again, end universal programs, direct help to only those in need. No more central planning or micromanaging economies. Serve the market. Don't force the market to serve you. Kill the income tax and property taxes. You know, personal in taxes on every level exceed the average person, the middle class, <laughs> there you go. Their combined living expenses, everything else put together doesn't match the taxes they pay. If you want jobs, then remember that a job is a relationship with an employer. Then you have to create a non-hostile environment for employers, which does not exist right now. So you notice you're not really concentrating on the poor per se. Get government back to governing not providing jobs, housing, and becoming a welfare state in its own right. We don't have government anymore. We have central planning management. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if you call that government. Allow private alternatives to housing, which, again, this brings, brings me back to Arnon Kaplansky, all the regulations that are in the way of building affordable housing, good housing. We should be able to have granny flats, to build shared accommodations in homes. Most of these things are made illegal by housing and zoning regulations imposed by the very municipality that's being called on to solve the problem it just created. Um, and you can't push pride and self-esteem in a social system that practices, that in practice punishes those virtues and forces us all into a coerced system of altruism. These things are grossly incompatible. And stop talking about poverty and endlessly analyzing it. It's been studied to death and we'll never learn anything new from it. We need to study wealth, how wealth is created, how you create wealth in a capitalist system. We need to learn about capitalism, the very process that is being constantly destroyed by wealth redistribution government programs. Get unions out of the health care and, and the care workers thing. They're making it so expensive. I can't believe so many of them are unionized. And these are just a few, just a handful of suggestions that each on their own would go a lot further towards alleviating the stresses on both the poor and the middle class. But you know what, Al? 
Not a single one of these ideas even was entertained by our so-called compassionate, caring social system. And that's what distresses me the most about these conversations. We can buy all the poverty we choose to pay for. Curing poverty or eliminating poverty aren't even possibilities. But we can minimize and make negligible the problem of personal poverty, not by causing systemic and entrenched poverty as a social norm. That's it for me this week. We've got to go for this week, and we'll return next week. Join us again, then, when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be all right. All right, Jethro. Read me that letter from Mr. Drysdale's bank. I don't think you're going to want to hear it, Uncle Jed. It's terrible news. Like what? Well, like you ain't got no more money. I don't want no more money. I got more than I can use right now. <laughs> 35, 40 million in it. Not according to this letter, you ain't got nothing. You're broke. Broke? Jed, clamp it. Yes, ma'am, that's a fact. He's what they call overdrawed. What does that mean? Well, that means that you owe Mr. Drysdale's bank uh, $34.70. That's why he wanted to get shed of us, putting poison in our pond. Next thing you know, he'll be burning down our barn.